Welcome to series three of Depollution from SalvageWire. In this podcast, we interview interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this episode, we welcome Vic Ferrari, former NYPD officer and now an author. Vic spent 10 years in the auto crime division of the NYPD and has lots of stories. Vic has also written about his time in NYPD and you can find his books on Amazon or at all good bookstores. Let's get into our conversation with Vic. Welcome Vic to the Depollution podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak to us. Just as a way of introduction, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career, and what you're currently doing? Well, first, I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on your show. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired uh, New York City police detective. I had a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. My last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division, where I investigated everything from your garden variety car thieves to chop shops, junkyards, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, sophisticated scams on how to steal cars, um, I had a great career. I retired and uh, moved down to sunny Florida. And uh, my friends used to tell me, you should really get into writing. You have all these great stories from a wonderful police career. Why don't you write it out? So I got into doing that about six years ago. And I've written a series of books about the New York City Police Department. And now my, my life is writing and going on platforms such as yourself. People with radio shows and podcasts are nice enough to put me on their shows. And I'm able to promote my books. And you say you've written um, a number of books now. How many books exactly have you written? I've written six, but four are specifically about the New York City Police Department. Okay. And, and are you currently working on a book now? I am. Yeah. And can you, can you tell us what, what, what the book is? It's another book about the New York City Police Department. My, my books don't have a beginning, middle, or end. You can pick up any one of my books and start thumbing through it. There's going to be a chapter with a theme and there's a series of short stories. Like one of my books has uh, a chapter called Crossing Over to the Dark Side. And that's about cops and police corruption, where cops get themselves into bad situations and go corrupt and wind up getting arrested and going to jail. For the most part, my stories are true. I changed the names, the dates, the locations and ranks because the two things I didn't want to do when I got into writing about my former employer was I didn't want to embarrass anybody or get them divorced. I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy, but at the same time, these stories, these things have happened. You know, um, one, there's another chapter in one of my books that's about cops that have gotten themselves into ridiculous situations. I knew a guy that once in the New York State Police Department, if you, the two, th- two ways you can get in a lot of trouble is losing your gun and badge. You usually lose 30 vacation days and they'll put you on a year probation. So this guy wasn't too bright and he was going out one night to have a couple of cocktails and he thought, where am I? And he lived in a lousy neighborhood. So he said, well, where am I going to hide my gun when I go out? So he put it in his oven. So he goes out drinking and then he comes back four hours later and nine beers later and he decides to preheat his oven to make some frozen pizzas. And what happens when bullets are exposed to that type of heat, they explode. So he had to crawl out of his house on his hands and knees as his gun was shooting at him, calling 
the New York City Police Department to get him out of the jam. And ultimately, he lost 30 vacation days and got put on a year probation because his gun was blown to bits and they needed a new stove. So all my books have short stories about things like that, about drug tests and arrests and creative criminals. There's no beginning, middle end. They're, they're great travel books. Brilliant. And how have your former colleagues um, received those books? Have they have they made made any comments? Have they have they been happy to, about that? Oh, all the time. You know, it's funny. When I got into writing these books, I, I was apprehensive because I said to myself, oh, I'm going to get a lot of pushback from guys. You're exposing too many secrets. You're, you're talking out of turn. You you're giving up too much information. It's been the opposite. Now I get cops, my friends, they're my big, biggest critics that call me up. You should have wrote about this guy. You should have wrote about this. So they're like children. You know what I mean? It's I'm getting phone calls all the time. And sometimes they're off. There's a couple of go-to guys, friends of mine that had interesting careers too. They're not interested in writing a book, but every now and then they'll pass along the story and I'll go, yeah, you know what? That, that'll that work. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. Now, obviously it, within auto crime, you've experienced uh, and been in the vehicle salvage, the vehicle uh, dismantling and recycling industry in, in salvage yards and, 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 and scrap yards and so on. I've got any any stories around around you know stuff that's happened in there, stuff that's happened in those sort of sort of environments? Sure. So my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, is everything you wanted to know about auto theft and were afraid to ask. It's about the auto theft industry. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in junkyards, salvage yards. Well, let, let me take it back first. In the in the early 90s, the New York City. New York City averaged about 150,000 stolen cars a year in the five boroughs of New York. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel if you wanted to grab somebody for a stolen car. I mean, you had teenagers stealing cars for joyrides. You had drug addicts using them to get around. And then you had the professionals, guys that were stealing cars to commit other crimes. And then cars being stolen for the auto theft industry. Uh, in New York back in that time, especially out in Brooklyn and Queens, the mafia owned a lot of these junkyards and salvage yards. Now, they were legitimate. If you walk by, they were licensed by the state of New York. They had permits and everything. But if you look behind the scenes, there was a lot more going on than just, yeah, my car doesn't work anymore. How much are you going to give me for this? So they would also, in addition to legitimate cars coming in to get dismantled for salvage, they would send out teams of steel crews to bring them stolen cars because it's found money. If, if, if they pay a kid 100 or 200 bucks to steal a car, that, that, that car is worth five, 10 times its amount in parts sometime. So we would go in and, and do inspections or especially like when LoJack and, and GPS systems started coming around, like we'd start getting pings in these junkyards and we'd start getting search warrants on them in them. Um, John Gotti, the, the infamous, you know, the Teflon Don of New York City, his son-in-law, actually, there was, there's a neighborhood out in Queens called um, Willits Point. It's right next to where the New York Mets used to play at Shea Stadium. It was a tremendous area where you had junkyards, um, uh, glass places, places, motors, body shops. The whole place was fed by the auto theft industry. Well, John Gotti's son-in-law basically ran that area. So if you wanted to open up a junkyard there, you had to pay him to just be in business. So um, what our Queens team did was they set up a phony business. They set up a junkyard and with an office and cars and 
they thought that Gotti's son-in-law was going to send a couple of goons to go in there and smack him around and tell him how it's going to be. Well, to their surprise, Gotti's son-in-law walks in on camera and starts going, oh, you can't operate in here. What are you kidding me? You know, you know who I am? So basically they started paying him. I forget what it was because this is over 20 years ago, but let's just say for argument's sake, they were paying him a thousand or fifteen hundred a month just to be able to for the right to operate in that location. And then because of that, he let them in on their scam. So in, in, in the United States, everything now is about the EPA and the environment. In a junkyard, you're supposed to have a concrete slab. You're supposed to collect the waste oils and someone's supposed to come and take the antifreeze, the old motor oil, the old transmission fluid. Well, none of that was happening. Everybody was dumping their waste oils into Jamaica Bay. The scam was they had a woman that owned a company that would she'd come around once a month you'd pay her whatever it was and she'd give you a piece of paper stating you know to give to the government or the epa that she was collecting your waste oils when nobody was coming around except for an envelope so there was a lot of things going on with that but ultimately what wound up happening was when we took down the case um we got him for all sorts of stuff extortion and and, and insurance fraud and a ton of things and he wound up um, on his wire on the wiretap. I think it came out that he was having an affair. So Gotti's daughter divorced him, and he wound up getting eight or nine years uh, in jail. And obviously, that's in the nineteen nineties. No, that's the early two thousand. Two thousand. Okay. And were you able to to stop that happening? Is it uh, has has it cleaned up now? Oh, definitely. You also got to remember too the price of what 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 really hurt. Well, I mean, it's not hurting, but what really cleaned up things with auto theft in New York was the price of real estate going up. So a lot of these vacant lots or half-assed junkyards that were in operation, what, what we would do is after we closed them down, New York City has this thing called a nuisance abatement, which means they would go to the landlord and say, hey, this comp you're leasing this land out or you're renting this property out that's being used as a criminal enterprise. You either have to rent it to somebody legit or the city is going to foreclose on your property. So what wound up happening was the landlord started playing ball and not renting out to places. You know, the landlords became more involved to what was going on in their property. And then property just got expensive in New York and people started buying up the land and building legit businesses and putting in, you know, housing complexes and, and affordable housing. So there were less places to chop up stolen cars, but it still goes on because you have people with little backyard, you have the professional chop shops, and then you have in the backyard or off the side of a highway in the woods, you walk in the back, like maybe a hundred yards off a highway in the woods, it would be like a lost civilization. You'd see like 20 or 30 chopped up cars back there. And they weren't using, they weren't using sawzalls. Or, or torches, but they were using hand tools to take off the fenders, the bolts, you know, that, you know, they, they make do. Yeah. And, and with those guys in, in, in Queens, they were, they were selling and distributing those parts around the local businesses. But what about export? What about, you know, whole vehicles or parts of vehicles getting, going out of the country? All the time. And, 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 and it was different ethnic groups involved. So we did an operation in the Bronx where we had a guy from Antigua, and he owned a, a parking lot. And what he was doing is he was shipping a couple of SUVs. He was shipping a couple of SUVs a month to Antigua. And what they usually do is they'll have a shipping container. They'll put, we call it a steel. They'll put the stolen car in the front of the container. 
And then what they'll do is they'll pack it with other stuff that's going to Antigua or, or whatever country. In a lot of these third world countries, they're poor. They'll take broken washing machines. They'll take old mattresses, you know, things that we throw out and throw take for granted as a luxury in Nigeria or Jamaica. So they'll make it difficult for us or customs. They'll put the stolen car in the front of the container and pack it with shit. And I'll tell you what, I've been in those containers. I mean, it's hot. It's dark. It's like going into a cave. You know what I mean? You don't want shit to fall on you. And then when you get in there, the car is packed with stuff. So it's a pain in the ass to get to the vehicle identification number, which they'll often chain, uh, change. Um, the most sophisticated um, stolen car ring that we, we worked on was around the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a Chinese uh, military intelligence officer that was living in Brooklyn. And what he did was he got in contact with a Jamaican guy that used to go to the salvage yards and they worked out a plan where the Jamaican had knew all these car thieves. And what he was doing was he would send out teams of car thieves and they were stealing probably 30 to 40 Audi A6s a month. And they would drop, steal the cars. They would park them by parks and stuff, wait 24, 48 hours to make sure they didn't have a GPS or, or low jack, let them cool off. They would take the stolen cars to Queens. The Chinese, what they did was they had a warehouse rented out. It was, it was a big warehouse and the stolen cars would go into the warehouse. They would shut the gate. And then what they would do is two stolen uh, Audis would go in, in per container. And then they would let the air out of the tires so that the, the cars would sit lower in the container. Then they would build a wood frame above it and build a ramp and put two, two, one or two extra cars on it. So each shipping container contained between three and four stolen Audis. From there, they would get picked up by truck. They would be driven to Newark, New Jersey. Then they were put on a train and railed across the United States over 3,000 miles to um, Long Beach, California, where they were shipped to Shanghai. And this was going on for years. And it was, it was a sophisticated operation. So we, we had multiple wiretaps in this case. We and the New York City Police Department at any given time has between 35 and 40,000 members. So with that many people, we had unlimited resources. And on top of that, we have so many people that speak so many languages. So we had Chinese cops monitoring wiretaps that were in Fukunese, I think Mandarin and Cantonese. Then we had um, Spanish cops monitoring the wiretaps because a lot of our car thieves were Spanish. So we had multiple wiretaps going on these 30 or 40 cars getting stolen out of, out of the tri-state area. I mean, these guys were hitting dealerships over the weekend, taking 10 cars out at once. And uh, on the wiretaps, we, start, we, we quickly realized that, that the car thieves were the murder for hire business. So these guys probably did between the group of them did about 15 or 20 homicides. So and they start bragging about it and talking about it. So when we took the case down, we grabbed the Asians, we charged them with enterprise corruption, which is the state level of racketeering. We grabbed the car thieves, cha charged them with the same. And then we started picking through them to get to the homicides. And ultimately we, um, we charged them with multiple homicides. So it was a great case. We, we came to find out that the cars, the reason that they were, they were Audis and they had to be black and silver was not because they were Oakland Raider fans, but because they were going to government officials. So we went to the State Department at the time and we told them about it. They really didn't seem interested. And, you know, we moved on. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And obviously at the time, you know, the, the late 90s, the early 2000s, the, the theft or the anti-theft devices on the vehicles were actually 
not that sophisticated. Nowadays, we've got much more um, anti-theft devices. How has that changed uh, you know, stolen vehicles? Are, are, are as many vehicles still being stolen or, or it, you know, is it different now? It's a totally different game and it was changing. I retired in 2007, it was changing then. So I grew up in, an, when I was a kid, I mean, the reason I was drawn to auto theft was as a, I grew up in a neighborhood, a lower middle-class neighborhood, there was so many car thieves in my neighborhood. And then I worked in a gas station as a teenager and they would drive in with stolen cars all the time to get gas or trying to sell the stolen car to the, to the gas station owner who would kick them out. But so in the old days, it was easy to steal a car. Like a General Motors product had those long neck steering columns. All you had to do was break that with a hammer and then use a screwdriver and pull the pins up. You could start the car. Door locks were a joke. I mean, the, the auto industry made cars easy to steal. They really did. I mean, it, it, it was in, it was basically, you know, it, it, they made the cars that way because the more cars that get stolen, the more they're going to produce to, re, to replace them. Um, it, then we started getting into the electronics aspect of it. it they, like car, uh, companies like Mercedes and BMW in the early 2000 went to chip keys. What did the car thieves do? They started making up phony titles. I locked up a guy. He, what he would do is he would go, he would make a, he would see a car he wanted to steal. He would get the VIN number. He'd have a friend print up a phony title with his name on it. And then he would go to the Mercedes or BMW dealership and say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a secondhand dealer. I bought this car with no keys. Here's the title. My name's on it. Here's my driver's license. And they would cut him a chip key. But now, now that the dealerships have gotten, they keep records on these things now. And now it's like, why does this guy keep coming in every 15 minutes to get a key cut? But I mean, the more, you know, the auto manufacturers get sophisticated with key fobs and stuff. Now, I, when I retired, I could probably steal any car that was out there because I was in auto theft for so long, I could start any car. My friend asked me that recently. I was like, I couldn't start any of these cars. You know, you got to be more of a, um, a, a tech guy now to steal a car than, than the old days. But it can be done. And if you have a tow truck <laughs> and you got a place to bring that car, and then all you need is like a, an RF reader or something to see if the car is admitting a signal. I mean, it's more difficult to steal a car now, but it can be done. Yeah, certainly we've seen in the UK, we've seen more instances where people have had their houses broken into and the keys have been taken to right. steal the car. Yeah, seen that. We're seeing a lot now, uh, has been over the last few years, of theft of parts from vehicles and particularly things like catalytic converters. What can be what can be done to to eradicate or to to reduce the the volume of theft of those components? You know, it's cr criminals. You know, everybody thinks criminals are stupid. They're not. I mean, they sit around all day. A lot of them could could be running legitimate businesses. Their problem is they don't want to work nine to five jobs or pay taxes. They make their own hours. And you got to realize the only thing a thief or a criminal their only overhead is getting caught and doing jail time. You know, I mean, they invest little in tools. Um, you got to protect your car. We call it layered protection. I mean, if you want to protect your car, you put a hidden kill switch in it. You try to park it in a, a, a lighted area with a lot of people around. If you have a garage, you put it in the garage. But nowadays, like you said, with these catalytic converters, and now they make these hand tools, you know, like a wizard tool to cut muffler pipe. I mean, a guy crawls underneath your car, Zip, zip, you know, he makes two big cuts. He's got your catalytic converter. 
that falls on the scrap metal processes because there's only so many places you can bring those things to. You know what I mean? If someone brought you a catalytic converter, you're like, yeah, great. What am I going to do with this? <laughs> there's only so many people that can turn around and convert that to cash for them. So, I mean, that that's law enforcement would have to lean on those those scrap metal processes make make more unannounced visits. I don't know how it is in the UK as far as the books. Like in, in the United States, the salvage yards, they had to keep a record of books. They had to have a, a record of when the car came in, what parts came off and where the parts went. A scrap metal process is totally different because in theory, the, you know, the metal is coming in and it's getting shredded or crushed or melted. So it's, you know, it's being converted into something else. But there should be something to hold them accountable that like a pawn shop, you just can't bring stuff into a pawn shop anymore and walk out with cash. They want your driver's license. I know in the state of Florida, if you go to pawn something, they want they're going to take a photocopy of your driver's license and they're going to take your thumbprint. So if someone comes in two days later and says, hey, that's my bike or hey, that's my necklace. Well, who brought it in? Well, Vic Ferrari. So now the police have somebody to go to. I definitely think someone's bringing in cattle. I, I, I think they should make it that the only people that can bring a catalytic converter into a junkyard, uh, into a, a scrap metal processor would be a licensed salvage place. You know what I mean? Who, you know, how many, how many of your friends do you know say, yeah, I got this catalytic converter laying around and I got to bring it over to the metal place. Like, no, that doesn't. And most of the time you don't even do that with your washing machine or something. You put it in front of your house and you wait for the metal guy to come by and take it, take it off your hand. So I, I definitely think that would be the way to go to make these scrap metal processes more accountable. Brilliant. Brilliant. And the, the salvage, the dismantling of the salvage industry in general, for years and years and years, it's 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 had a bad reputation purely because of the activities of a small minority. The majority are, are law-abiding, really, uh, you know, good, good businesses. Um, but they've had this reputation. What can those law-abiding businesses, those law-abiding people, what can they do to protect themselves from stolen parts, uh, stolen vehicles? Keep, keep, keep the good, keep a good set of books. I mean, here, here's the problem with, I know you say that most of them are legit, but you got to look at, you got to look at it this way. Okay. So the whole thing is rigged. So you crash your car and you go to a body shop and you get an estimate and body shop a tells you, you're going to have to pay your $1,500 deductible and your car is going to be ready in two weeks. You go to body shop number B and he tells you, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the, um, the co-payment and I'll have your car back in three days. Well, you're going to go to body shop B. Well, why, why is body shop B able to do that for you? Because he takes in stolen parts and he's going to manipulate the books. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to make, he's going to inflate the cost to make it look like he spent all this money in parts and then take care of your, 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 um, your co-payment. So, and it's the same thing with body shops, the same thing with junkyard. If, you know, two heroin addicts pull up just before the guy's closing and they've got a car, a stolen car, and they want a hundred bucks for it. It's found money to him. If he, I'm, I'm talking about a guy, not that a guy that goes out and s sends out teams of steel crews to steal cars, but if someone shows up with a car and says, you know, and it's obvious the person isn't a cop and they can chop that car up in, in a half a day, it's found money. They just laid out a hundred bucks and that guy, you know, he's having a bad month. 
He's going to make four or $5,000 off that car. He's going to take it. Here's another angle people don't realize, and it's insurance fraud with a lot of these junkyards and, and salvage yards. So say you've got, and it goes with a lease or a car payment. So say, say, you, say you went out and leased a brand new BMW and you had a couple of cocktails one night and you creased, the, you creased one of the fenders going into your garage and your kid threw up in the back seat. And oh, by the way, you're 5,000 miles over the limit. Now, you know, when you return that lease, they're going to see the damage. They're going to see you're over. You're going to wind up paying four or $5,000 in charges. Shit. Well, I don't want to pay that. But my brother owns a junkyard. My brother owns a salvage yard. So you go to your brother, Charlie. Hey, Charlie, take this car in on Monday. Make it disappear. And then on Friday, I'll go to the, once the car is, a, you know, in parts and half of it's sold off, I'll go to the police station on Friday I'll report it stolen and tell the police I saw it on Thursday. Then I, you know, I'll go to the lease company and go, yeah, I got a theft report. Insurance is going to take care of it. Same thing as if you owned a car, it's the same thing. You don't want it anymore. You're not going to get booked. You know, something happened to it and, and you're not going to get fair market value. Are, are you stealing the car? No. Is the junkyard, is the junkyard, you know, it's insurance fraud, but it's the same thing. The insurance company is going to, you, the insurance company is going to wind up paying out. And a lot of these, these um, junkyards, they might not take a stolen car, but they'll take favors for friends. It goes on all the time. Mm -hmm. We used to set up, sometimes if we knew a place was doing that, we'd set up a camera outside and you'd watch the cars going in, a couple of cars a week. They'd never come out. Then two, three weeks later, they'd get reported stolen. And we'd go up and lock up the owners for doing this. And then we'd all go back and lock up the guy that owned the salvage yard. That's amazing. That is that yeah. That people would do that sort of thing. Oh, we could do that. <laughs> we could do. We used to do that all the time. That we would have a press conference. It would be on all the television stations, and we could set. We could start a new case fifteen minutes later and get another thirty or forty people two months from now. All the time. Wow. Wow. Now, one of the things you. Um, that we do on this podcast is we look at leadership and management and in the, in, in the book Grand Theft Auto you've got a wonderful character in there who goes by the name of Chumley yeah and and, and I love the story I love what's you know you know, you know his, his attitude and whatever um, you know and obviously can you explain how, how Chumley failed to live up to that to that that leadership expectation you know I, I Chumley was a guy who he did almost 40 years with the New York City Police Department. Like the retirement age is 62 when he got as close as you could get to it. And he loved the department. His first 20 years, you know, he was a big drinker, party, he used to go out. And then I guess what happened was his 18th or 19th year, he realized, well, I want people to take me seriously. So he took the sergeant's exam, he became a sergeant and he, he worked in the auto crime division. Then he got promoted lieutenant and he came full circle. He comes back to the auto crime division when I've got like 10 or 12 years with the department. He was our supervisor. He knew just enough to be dangerous. We used to laugh because in the auto crime division, there was 120 detectives that covered the five boroughs. And it was very difficult to get in that unit because you either had to really know what you were doing, which was far and few between, or you had your father had to be a captain or a chief or you knew a captain or a chief, 
or you work there previously that they says, okay, he's got experience. He knows what's going on. So Chumley got in there on the experience thing, but he knew just enough to be dangerous. Like I would prefer a guy that knew exactly what he was doing or a guy that didn't know what he was doing. And would just tell you, just, just do what you got to do. I'll take care. I'll take care of the bosses. And Chumley was like a bull in a China shop. He would get involved in things that had nothing to do with him. He wasn't a bad guy, but at the end of the day, he made your life very difficult. If you read the book, you saw that story in there where the district attorney threw him out of his office. And, you know, it was like, it, that's unprecedented that a district attorney would, and if I'm going to curse, the district attorney goes, get the fuck out of my office. Like, we were just standing there with our mouths hanging open. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I love the story. It's just, you know, and, and just a shame how it, how it ended with, uh, you know, how he ended his career and, uh, you know, he, he didn't really sort of seem to seem to um, appreciate that, you know, he needed to get out when he, you know, when he could. You know, that happens to everybody in my last, I don't know if it was Grand Theft Auto or NYPD Law and Disorder. I equate a 20 year run with the New York City Police Department. It's a merry-go-round. You have your ups, you have your downs, but it's a lot of fun. But you have to know when to get off that merry-go-round. Everybody, I mean, I'd like to think when I retired, I did 10 years in the auto crime division. I was the go-to guy in my office. If someone had a question about something, I was always working on a new case. I'd mentor the upcoming detective. But things change. And we were getting new supervisors and it was becoming, even at 41 years old, I was the old guy in the office. And I saw that and I realized everybody at some point is going to outlive their usefulness. It's time to get off the merry-go-round before you know, secretariat throws me on my head. Chumley stayed 20 years too long and he kind of became a, a joke. You know what I mean? I mean, I liked him. It was just funny. I was just on the phone with another detective the other day that worked with me. And he goes, you know, he goes, he says, you know, Chumley wasn't a bad guy. I says, no, he wasn't. I says, he just, he's just one of these people that didn't know when to let go. And he hung around too long and they, they, they gave him a couple of ways he could retire and he didn't. And then they took his command away from him. They gave him, they gave him like a broom closet. I mean, they embarrassed him and he still showed up to work. You know what I mean? And it was like, you know, he was going to hang in there to the last possible second. And it's sad because, you know, he had, he had family, he had, you know, grandchildren. And, you know, soon after he retired, he, he died of a heart attack, riding his bike. So it's sad, you know, he wasn't a bad guy, but at the end of the day, he didn't know when to get off that merry-go-round. <laughs> Amazing. Now, looking at where you are now, uh, with twenty years in in NYPD, and now your your time as a as a book writer, um, uh, you know, what advice could you give young and aspiring leaders who are coming into any industry um, now? Or, in other words, what advice would the current Vic give to the twenty two year old Vic? Okay, so that's two questions, but I'll, I'll answer the first one. Um... I never wanted to be a supervisor. I never wanted to manage people. That's why I never took the sergeant's exam. You know, I, my route was going to be a detective, but having been man, I was blessed as far as in a 20, I mean, in a 20 year career, you're going to work for scumbags. It's just, it's especially in the New York city police department. I only worked with one or two bad supervisors my whole career. So I was very lucky. The people that, that managed me, my supervisors, they were flexible. They were willing to listen. They might not always give you what you want, but at the very least, they'd listen to you and maybe spell out why they didn't give you what you wanted. 
you know, sometimes it's sometimes people can save you from yourself. It, it's not the answer you want to hear. And then you'll take a step back and go, you know what? He or she was right. Um, as far as a 21 year old Vic, oh my God, I think back at some of the situations I got myself involved in early in my career. And I'm like, hey, I'm lucky to be alive. I mean, I was in oh, prop, well over 100 car chases and never wore a seatbelt. I mean, I just, I mean, this, there has to be God, you know, I mean, and I was never religious, but looking back, I mean, I've wrestled with people with guns in their hands. I, I'm very lucky to be alive. I would have, I would tell the 21 year old Vic, pay attention to what you're doing. Keep, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut and listen to what people say and tell you, because a lot of times people tell you about themselves. They'll tell you, they'll tell you who they are. Whether you choose to believe them or not is a different story. Amazing. Amazing. And there's one sort of final question. We, we ask all our questions, all our guests on the podcast, we ask them this. What was your first car? And do you have any special memories of that car? Yes, my first car was a 1976 Buick Regal with a Landau roof, a leather roof. I worked in a gas station and like any kid, I kept tinkering with it. My father used to go, you ruined that goddamn car. You know, first I put rims on it. Then I put a, a like a, a big stereo system in it. And then, you know, it was, a, it was thought of as a mid, mid-sized luxury car. I put a thrush muffler on it to make it sound. My father, it's not a race car. What, what the fuck are you doing? You know what I mean? I had um, all sorts of stuff. I ruined that car. And then, I had an accident with it. And I don't know if you guys had Earl Scheib in the UK. Earl no. Scheib was this company. It was this guy that made famous a $99 paint job. He'll paint any car, any color, $99. The company was around for years. And I painted that car so many colors that the paint used to peel off. Just, you know, just I should have just left the damn car alone, but I ruined it. <laughs> I have fond memories of that car. Although probably now I wouldn't be able to afford the gas that I would put in it. <laughs> oh, don't don't complain about gas prices. We're we're about double what you are in the US, so you know. Um, okay, now as as we close, where can our listeners? Where can they go and and get your books? All my books are on Amazon. Uh, if you just go to the book section and type in my name, Vic Ferrari, or since we've been talking about Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, all my books will come up. I try to keep the price point low. I know in the United States, all my paperbacks are $10. I don't know what they are in the UK, but they are available in the UK. And all my books are available on ebook download on Amazon for $2.99. Brilliant. Excellent. Vic, that has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. A big thank you to Vic for his time. You will find more details on Vic's books in the notes for this episode. Salvage Wire have been supporting the vehicle recycling and dismantling industry for years and are continuing to do this through our new global certified training network that will soon be delivering accredited training specifically designed for vehicle dismantlers and recyclers. If you want to know more about training or become one of our trainers, then please contact Salvage Wire through our website www.salvagewire.com or email training at salvagewire.com. Please subscribe and take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating. 
and we'll see you on the next podcast.